Good morning. How you guys doing? My name is David Wade, as Aaliyah said, and my wife and I are embedded church planters here at Park Hill. Uh, for those of us joining us for the first time, like Aaliyah said, we're in the thick of a series through the book of Revelation, or the Apocalypse of John. Now, that word apocalypse, it means unveiling or revealing, right? Seeing things as they actually are. Uh, think, when we hear apocalypse, think less zombies, less left behind, and more like the clouds parting to reveal the sun shining in full strength on a bright, beautiful, clear day. For the last few weeks, as we've been in this series, uh, I've also been just crushing this Game Boy Advance game called Fire Emblem. Anybody uh, familiar with Fire Emblem? Any emblematics? Let's go, bro. Okay, so I just made that term up, emblematics. Um, but I've just been like crushing that in my free time. And the game, it's really, really cool. It's a tactical role-playing game for those who are interested. Anyways, it starts off with, with one mission in mind. And that's to defeat this feudal lord, uh, Marques of Laos, who's trying to start a war so he can create a new empire and take over the world. But as you play through the game, you quickly realize there's another more sinister force at play behind his actions. It's actually giving him the power to rule. Uh, Marques Laos is really a puppet given power by the evil sorcerer Lord Nurgle. Come on, that's the name right there, Lord Nurgle. And Nurgle doesn't care who sits on the throne. He doesn't care who rules the world. He just needs to use them to further his end, which is to return dragons to the realm of humanity and destroy everything. And today, that's essentially the story we're going to see play out in Revelation 16 through 19 between the characters of the beast who functions sort of like Nurgle and Babylon whom the beast gives power so he can use her to aid the dragon in destroying the church, keeping the world in the cycles of chaos and oppression and destruction that we're so accustomed to today. Only what John finds out, what is revealed to him in the apocalypse, is that Babylon has actually already been defeated, and at the end of all things, she joins the beast and the dragon in, quote, becoming no more. See, Babylon is a symbol who represents something like total unfaithfulness to God, which is why she is called a prostitute, as we'll see. And she also represents the human proclivity to try to build a life or a world without God, where we rule ourselves, which is why she's called a city. So if you can throw that slide up. So when you think Babylon, think total unfaithfulness and human desire to reject God and to rule ourselves. And in my opinion, She's really the most tragic figure in all of literature uh, because the truth that will be revealed is this. Every single thing that sets itself up against God will fall. Every single system, ruler, principality, spirit, person that sets itself up in opposition over against Jesus Christ will ultimately crumble and be no more. And, and Babylon really epitomizes this fact. In the great revealing, Jesus is saying through John, let me show you what will really happen if you submit yourself to the beast, like Babylon does. Let, let me show you the end of a life that's lived outside of God. And so we're in act four of this great drama of Revelation, and there's a sense of urgency here as we're barreling toward the end. And so we'll start with chapter 16, which we'll summarize briefly. And this chapter offers those living in under, like Babylon, those living united to the beast, one final chance to repent. See, in chapter 16, we see the last plagues. Well, first of all, let's pray. Father God, uh, 
That was good, right? Father God, I just pray that you would meet us today, that every heart would be open, that you would unsettle that which needs to be disturbed. You'd shake up anything that's built on sand and that you would settle, confirm, and just like, yeah, just make the faith really firm of those who are resisting the pull and urge towards Babylon today. In Jesus' name, amen. So in chapter 16, uh, we see the last plagues, which God pours out through seven angels as his final judgment on all the, the unrepentant who remain on the earth. And these are called the last or the final plagues because the Bible says with them, the end or with the end of them, the wrath of God is ended. It's finished. It's over. And so what do we mean by wrath? Well, one scholar describes God's wrath as God's strong and settled opposition to all that is evil, which arises out of God's very nature. See, God is zealous for what is right. He loves what is good. He protects what is right and good, and therefore he hates what is evil. And so God is finally destroying all evil, so after this, there will be no more wrath to pour out, and by implication, no more opportunities to repent from evil. And we see a series of seven, which symbolizes totality or completeness in the Hebrew imagination. And we see this judgment come on those who worshiped the beast, even the beast itself and the beast throne. And we hear language like there's judgment on the sea and the rivers and the fountains, the sun, the earth, the air, everything, but it's all aimed at the beast and those who worship him. And some of us may ask why, right? Why is God pouring out his wrath? Why does he have to do it that way? And, and then this follow-up question, is it, is it right? Is it justified? Is it good? Well, an angel in Revelation 16 answers the question for us. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, you are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were, for they, those being judged, have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. They, they thought they were worthy. They thought that they could get away with destroying God's people, but here we see the blood that they shed, those who worship the beast, being paid back to them. As uh, Joshua Ryan Butler reminded us last week, for those who are here, judgment is actually God making good on his promise to be faithful to his beloved. And so what we see here in these plagues, this wrath, is God vindicating all those who clung to Jesus at the cost of their own lives when those who chose allegiance to the beast and thereby Satan slaughtered them like lambs. As one scholar writes, judgment is horrible and judgment is justified. And in the teaching team notes, Evan reminded us that if God just chose to not judge the universe, it would actually lead to the most unloving universe we can possibly imagine. Why? Because evil would reign supreme, might would make right, right? Whoever has the biggest sword, the biggest army, whatever, they get to decide what is right and just and true. And anybody else that disagrees with them is just crushed under their feet on their pursuit of absolute power. And therefore, all the blood of all the innocent who cry out from the ground like Abel would remain unheard until the end of time when the sun burns out. Nothing would matter. No one would be saved. All would be lost. But the good news, somebody say good news. No, come on, somebody say good news. 
All right. The good news of the gospel is that even in God's wrath, there is mercy. See, this patient God who Peter says is not slow according to our concept of time, but is patient because he desires that no one perish, but all would repent. This patient God, even in the final moments of reality as we know it, offers one last way out to those who worship the beast. He offers one last way out to those who persecuted, slaughtered, and martyred his church. He offers one last way out to those who rejected Jesus, saw him on the cross, and said that's where he belongs. Here we find one last opportunity for those who outright rejected and denied God to actually return to him. And so for those who worship the beast, God is demonstrating just how incapable of the, be the beast is of protecting them, right? Those who worship the beast, God is demonstrating just how incapable the beast is of protecting them, which is a bummer for them because the whole reason they received the mark of the beast back in chapter 13 was to be protected, right? Everybody who didn't worship the beast would be persecuted and killed. And so they said, oh, I'd rather serve the beast so that I could live. And here God's wrath demonstrates that the beast is unworthy of their allegiance. It's futile to trust him because he cannot protect them after all. But what do these people who worship the beast do when the beast's inability to protect them is exposed? Well, they cursed the name of God and refused to repent and glorify him. They cursed the God of heaven and they refused to repent of what they had done. They don't, they don't repent, they refuse. And then they curse God, which is something that only the beast has done so far in Revelation. See, they know God is the only one who can save them, and they, they actually hate him for it because they've been so formed by their loyalty to the beast that they can't see Jesus as a savior, but only as an enemy. In fact, they even assemble themselves for battle to fight against God, though when Jesus shows up in chapter 19, the war is won without a fight because these people are deceived, delusional, and ultimately dehumanized as pride and hate consume them. Uh, one commentary puts it like this, they have wholly taken on the character of the one they worship. In other words, they have been with the beast, they have become like the beast, and now they're doing what the beast did. Ultimately, this means they are destined for the same end as the beast, who was and is no more. I mean, as Jesus says in John chapter 19, and the angel echoes here in verse 17, it is finished or it is done. So after the seventh angel pours out his bowl and this last opportunity to repent is uh, experienced and, and over, we're introduced to a new character, who's also a really, really old character in the biblical story, though here she takes on new meaning. And this is the great city, or Babylon. John writes, God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. And it is with Babylon that we'll spend the majority of the rest of our time. Now remember, Babylon is a symbol, okay? For the Old Testament writers and the Jewish readers of John's letter, Babylon was the great empire who conquered Israel with brutality and horror and sent them into exile. 
In the Jewish imagination, Babylon, with its many gods and powerful rulers, was the epitome of unfaithfulness to God, the epitome of that which sets itself up as if it were God, and in the process destroys what is God's. Think of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar's famous line in Daniel 4. It should be on the screen. Is this not the magnificent or great Babylon, which I have built as a royal capital by my mighty power and for my glorious majesty? That is Babylon. That's the heart behind it. And in Revelation then, Babylon becomes the city, nation, system, people, rulers who unite with the beast in opposition to God. She is all of these and more. Babylon, Egypt, Tyre, Sodom, Rome, whoever you can think of. Remember, when you hear Babylon, think total unfaithfulness to God, human desire to reject and rule ourselves, and then I'll add a third, which is self-preservation, self-gratification, and self-worship. That's Babylon. And thankfully, Revelation 17 gives us a prophetic description and an explanation of this symbol. And so before we dive into the text proper with her, I just I want us to be aware of the fact that John uses some pretty harsh and uh, sexualized language to describe Babylon, which is this language of prostitution. And I want to be clear that this is not meant to demean or dehumanize women. Uh, prostitution and adultery are major Old Testament images that God uses to describe Israel, both male and female, when they betray God's covenant and break his heart by committing themselves to idols and other lovers. And since Babylon is something like the totality of unfaithfulness that leads to depravity and destruction, she therefore demonstrates the end result of choosing other lovers apart from Christ. Does that make sense? So with that in mind... Let's read uh, 17, 1 through 6. So, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth have committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. So John sees an angel who says, come, I want to show you the final judgment or the punishment of the great prostitute, the final judgment of unrepentant unfaithfulness, the final judgment of those who don't take that opportunity to repent. And, and we get these three symbols that we see in here. She sits on many waters, what the angel later says are peoples, nations, multitudes, languages. So it looks like she's ruling over all the world. It looks like she's ruling over every ethnos and nation, every tribe and tongue, right? This is intentionally echoing the language of Jesus who will rule over every tribe, nation, tongue, and, and et cetera. And she rules over them through deception and sorcery, right? Instead of ruling over them through truth and love, she rules over them through deception and sorcery. And then we find out that all the kings or the rulers of the earth have at some point chosen her instead of God. And then you go beyond that, even all the common people, all the peoples of the earth have given into her temptations at some point. That's you and me, the small folk, uh, small folk is from Game of Thrones, or the wine of her adulteries, right? All of us have given in and been tempted at some point. And so we have to ask, what do these temptations or adulteries, what does this unfaithfulness to God look like? Well, Revelation 18 gives us a, a kind of big, long list of her sins, and I'm just going to briefly summarize them here. What does Babylon look like today? Which is what Babylon has looked like always. Loving wealth more than God. 
couple months ago it came out that San Diego was the most expensive city in America. Got a house just in time. Praise God, baby. Um, <laughs> loving wealth more than God. It's, it's all around us, right? Not just for the rich, but for those who are trying to climb up some ladder that they think they'll get to the top of one day. Sexual object objectification and exploitation of others. Pornography. Free, free love, right? Uh, exploiting and objectifying, denying their personhood, dehumanizing them until they're just something for me to project my pleasures and desires and needs on. And it's the same thing with economic objectification and exploitation, right? Unfettered capitalism, materialism that reigns supreme, communism that says that you're just a product and a worker that exists to serve the state. It denies the personhood, turns a, a person made in God's image into an object and then exploits them. Political partnerships for the sake of power as opposed to what is right. That doesn't happen in our country. <laughs> Accepting injustice to others when it benefits you and your tribe. It's turning a blind eye because I'm eating over here. Right? It's good for me over here. And so I know that the system is all messed up and it's built on the back of slaves or child labor. But, but I'm just going to kind of pretend I don't see it because I like shopping at Zara or whatever, you know? Nobody in here shops at Zara. And then all of it ultimately leads to the, I just rediscovered Ross, which that's kind of cheap, that's good. Anyways, okay. Uh, <laughs> ultimately this leads to the reject, rejection and hatred of God and God's people, right? That's what all of this leads to. And so all of us in this room, just like all humans who've ever existed, have participated in some of these sins and have been tempted to participate in others. That's why Babylon can be so difficult to escape, right? Uh, somebody in the pre-gathering prayer had this image of a web, like in a web that entangles us and enchants us that we can't get out of because at the root of all these temptations are basic human desires for security, happiness, power, and recognition. And in the initial deception or depiction, description of her, what John sees in the beginning, his first view of her, it appears that her way is the best way. It appears that she is winning because at first glance, she's ruling over all. She's sitting on many waters. All the kings bow to her, but the angel carries John away and he gets a second look. He gets a different vantage point. A deeper truth is revealed. Let's keep reading. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness where I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. Uh, she held a golden cup in her hand filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her head was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, and of the abominations of the earth. See, things are not as they seem. The woman ruling over many is actually a prostitute dressed like royalty. And this great one isn't sitting on a throne, she's sitting on the beast as if a throne. And if you remember, this is the same beast from Revelation 13 who has been cursing God and harassing his people throughout history, seemingly without consequence. 
The beast is a symbol, the embodiment of opposition to the lamb and rejection of God, given political power by the dragon, that's why he's red, to wage war against the church and to lead nations and rulers away from the lamb. It has seven heads and ten horns, which are symbols for great authority and power. And in the exchange, or excuse me, and Babylon has given herself completely to this beast in exchange for this dragon power. Right? In exchange for supremacy in this broken geopolitical system and broken world, in exchange for everything she thought she ever wanted, she gives herself wholly to the beast. Now, this language of being led into the wilderness should remind us of another wilderness temptation, right? Jesus, Matthew chapter 4, when he's being tempted by Satan, and Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, all that his heart could ever desire in exchange for what? For worship. If you just bow down and worship me, all of this will be yours. But Jesus refused. He said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Yet Babylon said yes. See, people don't trust the beast because it is powerless, right? It actually has power to give. Kings compromise with the beast because they believe it's powerful enough to secure them over against their enemies and to grant them the desires of their hearts. I mean, Babylon is attractive, right? She's covered in jewels and gold and pearls. She appears to be winning by uniting herself to the beast. And so the kings and the rulers of the earth say, me too. Sign me up. I want to turn. And the people of the nations who are under those rulers, they say, I like prosperity. I like pleasure. I like security. Even if it means that those out there have to suffer. I mean, think about man. During the abolition movement, right, there were people who were like morally against slavery, but then said, oh, it's a necessary evil so that our country can like be wealthy and like gain, gain and attain power, right? Like that's the definition of that Babylonian spirit. I'm prospering over here. They're suffering over there. Beast can't be that bad because I'm on the winning side. But that's not how it works. The dragon or the beast's power is built on deception. He promises that if you worship him, if you're faithful to him, that he'll keep you safe. You'll have power. You'll be in control. But as we've seen in Revelation 16, this is all a lie. He can't protect you. And what's worse, he never intended to protect you. All he wants to do is use you for his own agenda, right? Like Lord Nurgle in Fire Emblem, the beast will give you power and pleasure for a little while, so long as he can use your life to unleash dragons on the world. And so the beast uses Babylon, or whichever great city or nation is on top at the time, and for John's hearers, this was Rome, but beast uses Babylon to draw all other kings toward the dragon as well. In other words, for the ability to do whatever she wants, Babylon has become willing to be used however the beast wants. And if we're talking about cities and nations and cultures, things can get ugly really quickly, can't they? Like it starts with an unprecedented third term or an unlawful annexation. Or perhaps it begins with something as simple as gerrymandering, which is justified as the only way to win, or, or maybe even denying election results. But if you follow the path far enough, 
anything is justifiable. See, in the pursuit of power, pleasure, and security, we become more and more enmeshed in the beast until even opportunities to repent become battle cries of blasphemy as we sink deeper and deeper into depravity. And inside a culture that has lifted Babylon high instead of the lamb, there's no room for God's church. See, at the end of his description of Babylon, John sees this. He says, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony or witness to Jesus. Babylon, an imitation of the beast she is becoming, wants to become God. And as the mother of prostitutes, Babylon becomes the mother of all the other Babylons that will come after her. All countries and cultures who unite themselves to the beast for power and wealth at the cost of obedience to and relationship with the land. And when you're a ruler or a city or a nation that makes such a choice, those loyal to the lamb within your wall become like a stench to you. They become a witness against you. The church becomes a reminder of how far you have fallen and how far you will go. So at the extreme end of this spectrum in Babylon, you even kill the church. Why? Because Babylon's power comes through committed unfaithfulness to God. So in Babylon, Christian faithfulness to God becomes a liability. See, our lives, our words, and our actions, our testimony to Jesus, our faithfulness to him, when there's a pull to be unfaithful to him, it becomes a cause of concern for the culture. Because are we, I mean, I'll never forget, dude, sitting uh, in this MFA program, top MFA program in the world, hope they're not watching, and um, in this party, and they were talking about this girl in like some Middle Eastern country who uh, auctioned off her virginity for like millions and millions of dollars. And then like the talk around me was just like, good for her, like that's what's up, get your money girl, like da 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 da. And I just remember being like, where am I? <laughs> this like, you know, what is happening? They call evil good and good evil, right? And if I were to speak up in that moment, it's like, ooh, why are you being such a prude? Why are you such a religious? Why are you so, you know? The reason why our Christian witness becomes a cause of concern in the culture is because our reality centers Jesus, but the reality of Babylon removes Jesus from the center to make room for the beast and through the beast, the dragon. Right? It wants the dragon at the center. People don't necessarily want that, but the beast who is using them wants that. Does that make sense? And so here as Christians, we have the call to remain faithful to the lamb when our culture, country, or city rejects God, especially when it costs us something. Now that might sound abstract to us, right? But for John's hearers and much of the early church after them, persecution, even martyrdom, was entry-level Christianity. Like today's Baptism Sunday, the waters are open for anybody who wants baptized, and they were saying, hey, come die now so that you can be raised to life because the moment you step out of these waters, you might actually be killed for your faith. That's what it meant. And I just wonder today in our 21st century Western American, super powerful San Diego, finest city in America, and it is, but like would our witness hold up under that type of scrutiny? Would your witness hold up 
under those kinds of threats? Would mine, right? Are you a faithful witness in your workplace? Are you a faithful witness on your campus? On Saturday night when none of your church friends are around? See, some of us can't even admit we are a Christian in conversations with our friends because we're afraid we won't look cool. Is that too much? And yet John, he's writing this while he's exiled on a little rock for his faith, left to die. I mean, it's deep. You guys okay? I like that, man. That's like my dad says stuff like that, okay. Um, it's, just, it's really a terrible vision that John sees, but it can be compelling. And yet I do think there's room for encouragement this morning because when John sees all this, he says, when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. That word, uh, the NIV says astonished. Other translations say amazed or marveled at. It literally means marveled at. John sees her and he's so impressed that he uses the same word the beast worshipers used in Revelation 13 when they gave the beast worship. He marveled at the beast or at Babylon. See, Babylon can be so impressive, so attractive, and the beast's victory can seem so complete that you could be in the middle of the most absurd Holy Spirit encounter of your life. You could literally be in the Spirit on the Lord's day and still be tempted. I mean, this man has literally just seen angels and the lamb and indescribable God on the throne. Enough experience for tens and tens of lifetimes, right? Like enough moments that you could never forget who God is and what he's done. And yet the moment he sees Babylon and her perverse glory, his heart either grows weak or, or begins to turn away, potentially even persuaded. Something happens. We don't know exactly what, but she leaves him in awe. And if John is susceptible, how much more are you and me who have yet to experience such glory? Anybody else uh, seen the lamb on the throne with the 24 elders bowing down your prayer closet this morning? All right, not me, okay? How, <laughs> uh, Saturday night, it feels like a little bit easier to justify for us, right? It's a little bit easier to be quiet at that party. It's a little bit easier to go along with whatever is going along at the workplace because we haven't had that experience and John had it, so of course he should be faithful. Yet even in John's heart, something happened at the sight of her. But there's such good news because, because Jesus resisted Satan's offer in the wilderness and defeated the beast long ago on the cross, John too, as a representative of the, a representative of the church eternal, as a representative of you and me here today, is kept faithful by the Holy Spirit. I want to say that again. Because Jesus was victorious over Satan in the desert, because Jesus was victorious over the beast on the cross, you and I, when we're tempted by Babylon today, even if we fall, we have this promise, the security that will get back up through repentance, through God's faithfulness, that the Spirit will keep us until the end. That's why when the angel sees John, and he sees John marveling, the angel says this. He says, why are you astonished? Why are you so amazed? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that she rides, which has seven heads and 10 horses. See, the beast that you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss to go where? To destruction. And the inhabitants of the earth 
whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world. So this is those people who continue to repent and curse God until the end, who hate God until the end. Those people, they will be astonished at what happens to the beast. It's the same word. It's like God said, I'm going to give you something to look at. How great will be her fall. See, the angel says, I know it looks like she's winning now. I know it looks like she is worthy of your worship today. I know it looks like there is no hope for God's faithful inside the city walls, but do not be deceived. Her end is coming, and it will be something marvelous to behold. And all those who refuse to repent, who partner with the beast to the end, they're going to be amazed and left in awe right before they share in her destruction. Even when it looks like every kingdom on earth has given its authority to the beast. I mean, even when all of the kings and rulers have embraced Babylon and then they come to defend her a little bit later in the text, we have a promise of victory in Christ. Like, this is the moment of Armageddon where they all, the kings of the rulers of the world, they line up to defend Babylon and to uh, fight against Jesus and his army with, uh, alongside the beast. And here's what the text says. It says, they will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he's Lord of Lord and King of Kings. There's no battle, there's no sword, no gun, no tomahawk, missile, it's just he shows up and he wins. Why? Because of the very nature of who he is. Because he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and one day every knee will bow. We can choose to bow now or we can be forced to bow ultimately. And all those choosing dragon power, all those cursed who curse God and refuse to repent, they share in the fate of the beaten. So I, I just don't know where you're at in your walk this morning, but I want you to hear as a prophetic word today where it looks like evil is winning in our world and in your life, where it looks like Babylon's reign is unending and God's power is weak, where it looks more attractive to reject the lamb and to choose the dragon in all his subtle manifestations, whether that's your sexuality or your political compromises or your religious compromises or hatred or cynicism, or this morning we were talking about bitterness at God not showing up in the way that we wanted and felt like we needed him to show up. And so we just say, I, I'm mad at you, God. I hate you, God. I don't want to be near you. God, I'll just stay over here. Wherever you're at this morning, be aware, be warned, and be encouraged that the end of those things is at hand. Evil will be judged with finality, and God's Lamb will reign supreme. Amen? And so in the last few minutes... I just want to look at three simple ways to respond to a message like this. How do we respond to Babylon and her demise? And the first thing is simple. We, just, we need to recognize the fall, right? Recognize Babylon for what she truly is, fallen and defeated, a slave of the beast who will share in the beast's end. John writes, after that description of Babylon, he says, after this, I saw another angel. This is the beginning of uh, Revelation 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor and with a mighty voice. Somebody say mighty voice. Dude, we're doing like real like 
church today. It's cool. All right. With a mighty voice, he shouted, fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit and a haunt for every unclean bird and a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. See, we move on to the official declaration of Babylon's defeat, and the curtains are pulled back yet again. So first she's on the waters, then we see she's actually seated on the beast as if a throne, and now we see Babylon's true state is revealed. And it's not the great city, the great anything. It's the opposite of great. The city of self-rule and self-worship has become a graveyard, a wilderness fit not for human beings and not for human trust, for security, but only for all that is unclean and impure. And then there's these three laments that happen and all the kings who grew rich and powerful from uniting with Babylon and all the merchants and traders who grew rich and powerful from Babylon sing a version of the same song at her fall. And it goes something like this, woe, woe to you, great city. I mean, they're literally weeping and mourning. You mighty city of Babylon, in one hour, your doom has come. See, she thought she'd be around forever. And it looked like she'd be around forever. But in just a little while, the Bible is telling us, her doom has come. Uh, what, what she is attempting to make an unending reign and an unending empire is actually as short as an hour, it's over in a second, and her doom will be great again. As Jesus declared on the cross, and as the angels echo, it is finished, it is done. Or as John puts it, then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. First thing we need to do, recognize the fall. Recognize the fall. And the second thing, respond to the call. And there's kind of two categories that I want to touch on here. Uh, for some of us, you might be here today and you might have rejected Jesus. You might have rejected the lamb as John calls him. Uh, you might be like those who curse God in Revelation 16, you might have tried everything in your power to do it your way. You're like, I don't know about this beast stuff. I don't know what that's about, but I don't need God. God, not for me. How could I trust him? How could I love him when there is this suffering in the world? Whatever your reason is, and yet the spirit today might be convicting your heart of the truth of this word convicting your heart of things you've done that you know you need forgiveness for, areas where you know you've entrusted yourself to something that is evil, something that cannot satisfy or save. And the real call for you today is just simply to repent, which means to turn around from going that way and to come back this way, come home, to not leave here today without giving your life and your worship to the Lamb. I know we don't really talk about that that much, and I don't know if that applies to anybody in here, but if that's you, do not leave here today without surrendering now to Jesus. And if you need help with that, come talk to me, come talk to one of the pastors or people who will be up here to pray for us in just a little bit. 
We would love to walk with you through that because he is the only one worthy. He's the only one who can protect you. He's the only one who cares about you. He's the only one who has positive, good intentions towards you. He's the only one who knows you. He's the only one who will keep you. He's the only one for you. And one day we're all gonna face judgment and there's gonna be no more opportunities like this. I know that's heavy, but it's true. And yet the church, those of us in here who have a relationship with Jesus, we have to respond as well. Because before Babylon is destroyed, we hear another voice, and scholars debate this, uh, who it is, but for me, it's the lamb. (laughs) It's none other than the lamb. And, And here's what he says. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Come out of her, my people. There's this short story uh, called The Ones Who Walk Away from Amalus by Ursula K. Le Guin. Um, and it's the clearest way that I could think to describe this call here. Of course, it's representative of Exodus, right? And they're calling the Israelites out of Egypt, and, and God made a way for them through the chaos and the evil imperial army at their back. And so there's that element right there. And he's saying, hey, don't participate in that. Come out of her. But, but I thought this picture might be helpful. Uh, it's a short story about the city called Amalus, and it's like the perfect city. There's people playing the flute all the time. Food is amazing. Buildings are beautiful. Complete joy, total peace and safety and security. Nobody fights. Nobody's in jail. There's no problems, no drama. Total prosperity, total happiness, total freedom from the enemies around them. But there's a catch. All of Amalus's prosperity, prosperity and success and security is built on something that happens in this, this little basement deep below the city. And in the basement, in no more than a broom closet, lives an an emaciated child. Uh, In the dark, no light, no windows. They feed it just like a bucket of, uh, I think it says, grease and cornmeal each day. It's been in there so long and um, it's so broken and so neglected that it, it looks like it's maybe four or six years old, but it's closer to 10 years old, living in its own filth and excrement. And every single person in Amalus knows that the child is down in the basement. And they all have a choice. They can either ignore the child in the basement and carry on with their lives as they live because the prosperity is built on that kid. You can't even show it compassion, can't be kind to it, whatever. So you can just know that it's down there, live your life in Amalus and be, you know, living in peace. Or they have to leave the city. They have to leave the city through the front gates and they can never come back. They become wanderers. The last word uh, says they don't even know, the people, nobody knows where they're going, but it seems like they do. There's something better. There's something they have to escape from out of here. And there's something outward because they cannot participate in this system. Those who stay, they justify why. It's better here. I don't know what's out there. And today we have a simple choice, really. Once we recognize Babylon, once we see it for what it truly is and 
all the blood that it costs, not only the blood of Jesus, but the blood of the innocent and the blood of the oppressed and the blood of the marginalized and the blood of the martyrs and the blood of the church. Once we see it, it's like we can no longer just justify staying in the system. We can no longer justify participating in the lifestyle that it affords. Like if you follow Jesus, if you're chosen and called and faithful, the, the, the answer is really simple, you leave. We're the ones who walk away, the ones who refuse to participate, even when it costs us greatly. That's the catch. Because we know it's like stepping out of the matrix and, and we just know what is really behind the scenes. But thanks be to God, it's not just what Babylon does that we know, it's her end that we know. And so this is not a call to physically leave San Diego and move to another country, because Babylon is everywhere, right? You're gonna find her no matter, you're gonna find her on your phone. You're gonna find her in your heart. But it is a call to live from a city that is yet to be built, like Hebrews says, right? And we'll have more on that as we wrap up Revelations in the coming weeks. But in the meantime, what do we do? So this brings us to our third point. We recognize the call, respond to the fall, or recognize the fall, respond to the call, and then we rejoice with all of heaven. See, at the end of all the description of defeat, all those who grew rich and powerful and influential of Babylon, in Babylon, they mourned and wept, right? All those who recognized the cost and chose to stay in the city, they mourn and they weep at her loss. But from the church and from all of heaven, we hear a different sound, singing. It is finished, she is done, this part of reality is over, and then John, he's gonna sing this song, or he's, excuse me, he's gonna hear this song, and before we go into worship, because I'm gonna read just the whole thing, and the worship team, you guys can go ahead and come up, um, but before we go into worship, as a final response, we're gonna spend some time just repenting. We're gonna spend some time in confession. And I just want to remind us what Babylon looks like today. If you can throw that slide back up. I don't know which of these apply to you. Which of these have been enmeshed and entangled in your heart? Which of these are easier to justify than others? But whatever they are, we have an opportunity to lay them down, to disentangle ourselves from them, to walk out of Amalus, to come out of Babylon, and we'll have prayer team, community leaders, pastors up here that will pray for you on the side. You can just do a simple confession and we'll look you in the eyes and say you're forgiven. And then we'll worship the lamb together because we know we'll sing a song of victory that even when we slip up, even when we get entangled, even when we fall short, the battle has already been won. Amen? And God's going to keep us to the end. So you guys rise with me. You know, it can be hard to come to grips with the areas of our life that we've aligned with, the city that crumbles, the lover that leads to death, the beast that could never protect us. And so as I sing this song, or I'm not going to sing it, I'm going to read this song that John hears. I just want you to hear the call clearly to come out of Babylon, to obey, and to rejoice with all of heaven. Here's what John hears. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, hallelujah. 
Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride, that's us, has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Amen.